Welcome to Winning Slowly, a podcast offering commentary on trends in culture, technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Carradini. Today we're going to be looking at three topics. We're going to be starting with um, the future of internet radio, looking specifically at Spotify, iTunes Radio, and Pandora, and looking at how the various players in the space have maximized their opportunities, minimized some of their potentials, and been ignored somewhat by some listeners. We're then going to go into a discussion of Christian pastors as authors, and look at how they're seen by their audience as readers, how they're seen by their audience as church members, um, and where some of the tensions lie in that particular um, endeavor. Are you a pastor? Are you an author? Are you both? Um, And then finally, we're going to take a look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and particularly look at the aspects of it related to how laws in the 21st century are made, and how we can potentially look at some ways to change that. So for Spotify, iTunes Radio, and Pandora, the last couple of years have been simultaneously tumultuous and contentious, uh, whether it's lawsuits for amounts of money coming in, or Pandora looking to get Congress to raise the amounts of money they can charge, lower the amounts of money they can get away with paying out, Spotify launched globally not that long ago, and just this last fall, iTunes Radio got a major bump in functionality from just being a bunch of basically, well, radio stations that had internet streaming to being a fully function functional player in the entire space. And there's also other things like Beats Radio and RDO and Mog and a lot of different players in the space Um, But we're going to be specifically looking at three of what we consider to be the biggest players in the space, um, with all apologies to the rest of the greater world of internet radio. This whole topic came up because when iTunes Radio first came out, I thought, well, I'll try it. And to my surprise, it worked really, really well. Now, I listen mostly to a mix of classical music and film scores, and I gave up on Pandora half a decade ago because I could never, ever get Pandora to come up with a halfway decent selection in either of those categories. I turned on iTunes Radio expecting to see about the same, and, well, suddenly I had not only multiple new things I liked, multiple new things I liked well enough that I wanted to buy them. Yeah, that is one of the main issues that makes iTunes radio really interesting is that um, it does have that play uh, versus purchase function all in the same engine. Um, Also, I'd like to point out that I was the one who told you to listen to iTunes radio. (laughs) It was a good call. Yeah, so iTunes radio was really fascinating to me because I didn't really know why it would exist. Uh, Originally, they said, hey, we have a radio station now. And I was like, oh, great. And so I didn't check it out for several weeks, uh, even though I knew about it from the day that it started. And I had the same experience that Chris had when I started listening to uh, a custom station that I made based on um, Mumford and Sons and the Mountain Goats. Uh, I found bands that I really wanted to buy their music. So I've heard about the Rocket Boys and Bronze Radio Return and Amy Straup, bands that I really enjoyed that I'd never heard, but that uh, iTunes Radio specifically figured out or 
however they, however we want to call that mechanism, figured that I would want to hear them. I had the same experience with putting in artists ranging from John Williams of, you know, Star Wars and Indiana Jones fame to Estonian minimalist composer Arvo Pert. And let's just say that the latter has never gotten good traffic on any radio station I've tried. And in particular, getting anyone who sounds like him has been nigh impossible. Now, both of these options, iTunes Radio and Pandora, are quite different from Spotify. Spotify gives you unlimited plus ads or not, depending on how much you're paying them, streaming of whatever artists they have in their library. I'd actually run into some of the same issue with Spotify in that, well, their library just isn't that strong. It's gotten stronger in the last year or so, but has not historically been that strong in these particular areas. You want pop? It's got pop out the wazoo. You want classical or film scores? Well, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, and that's part of the reason that iTunes Radio is so interesting to me, is that they are able, because they're one of the recognized main ways that people buy music, they have a humongous pool to pull from. Uh, which Pandora um, does not have and Spotify does not have. Um, and especially and, they don't have in more obscure genres. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to license it the same ways that uh, Pandora and Spotify do because people are volunteering their music to iTunes. Uh, and it stands to benefit if they do because I bought music from Bronze Radio Return because their music was in iTunes um, and in iTunes Radio. Um, and I'm still not certain how the connection between like being on iTunes and being in iTunes radio works. Um, but regardless of whatever that is, the fact that Rocket Boys put their music on iTunes and then it appeared in uh, in iTunes radio and then I purchased it from one click was pretty great. One of the big downsides Pandora has had in trying to get licenses over the years is that they don't have that saleability. And frankly... Any streaming service pays out such low rates to artists and even to the studios that manage the artists that it just doesn't look like a very good deal for the most part. You have to get played thousands of times to make any reasonable amount of money. iTunes Radio, for the first time, looks like, hey, this is easy to make a sale from a radio play. Now, Pandora's tried that. They've had buy this song links, but there's a very big difference between buy this song on some other service over there. Oh yeah, I'm not logged in on that account. Blast. I don't even remember my password for that. Or, oh, I don't really want to go do Amazon. I just want to listen to this to click. Oh, I yeah. just bought it. Being embedded in the same ecosystem is really important. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that it has going for it. And Spotify, which kind of shouldn't be categorized as internet radio because it has a radio function, but it's primarily an on-demand streaming service. Right. But there, but there is a radio function, uh, and which it is, is terrible, even worse than Pandora in the spaces I care about. Yeah, I have never used it. Um, well, that's not true. I have used it, but it it didn't pique my interest enough <laughs> to actually continue using it. So, uh, but it's it's interesting that these have become the two sort of methods that we use for digital music, either the streaming with uh, on-demand uh, big silos um, or the you know purchasing um, through the embedded ecosystem. Right. Um, and so with iTunes marrying the two, that's a really interesting 
coup. Now, what's interesting is most people I've talked to haven't used iTunes Radio at all. Many people don't even know it's there. Yeah, a lot of people don't know it exists. I posted on my Facebook about it when I started finding interesting bands, and some people who were in the know uh, showed skepticism, and then... (laughs) And then some people said they'd never heard of it. So it's it's definitely under radar. And we had speculated that perhaps they were going to do a big push for Christmas and tie it to some new technology or a new iPod or something like that. But that didn't happen. There was nothing, in fact. One of the things that's been curious to us along the way is why Apple has not chosen to make a bigger deal out of this than they have. Because they have the best radio selection algorithms of any service i've tried bar none Mm -hmm. i agree with that now part of the reason might be because as most people who use it are agreed itunes as a piece of software is kind of bloated it is really terrible it loads so completely slowly it's just unnecessary one of the issues then that matters to us as people who are interested in how people go about winning slowly is what happens when you have the best service in a space. And I think Apple has unquestionably the best service in this space, both for artists and for users. It provides the best listening experience for me as a user. And as an artist getting money from streaming sales that also are easy to convert into actual purchases, which make you money much faster. That is a killer deal. I agree. But iTunes being terrible, being this bloated, heavy mess, especially if you're not on a Mac platform, if you're on Windows, it's awful. This is inherently limiting, and not just limiting, but perhaps uh, catastrophically so for the service. Yeah, I would be really interested to see if they could spin off iTunes from itself, essentially, (laughs) and make iTunes just a music thing. And then have their their TV and games and you know ebooks portal be on its own. And I know that originally they were trying to prop up the the video stuff with the music stuff, but now that we're a long you know, ways past that now. Yeah, yeah. People are gonna use the video thing on its own, really. I mean, I don't do the video stuff at all, um, but I know some people who just use it or just do video and they don't really care about music. So, you know, I think that there's something to be thought about there is can we start to de-integrate some of these services now that we aren't in a, this is the internet. It is all of the things at once. (laughs) Right. And the flip side of that, interestingly, is for someone like Spotify or Pandora, though they have very different business models from each other, can they get some of the benefits of integration that iTunes has? Uh, Spotify's goal doesn't seem to be that at all. They just want to make their money from streaming. The question is whether they'll ever be actually profitable at doing that. And then for Pandora, not only do they have profit issues, but in theory, their goal is to convert things into sales. And it historically hasn't worked for them trying to thread that needle seems to be a bit of a trick for everyone yeah there's definitely no pure player in the music space that's getting it completely right yet so what i'm hoping to see sometime in the next few years whether it's apple or pandora or anyone 
is to get this sorted out with a really quality piece of software and a really quality service. Now, the problem has been, I think, that in each case, you have one of the above. Yeah. iTunes Radio is a great service. Software is pretty meh. Pandora is a so-so... Well, <laughs> qualify what I said. Pandora is a so-so service if you're not interested in pop, and the software is pretty meh. Spotify is very good at what it does. It's very good software. You can't You can't knock it on that. Right. But the service... Well... It's good at it's, what it does in the sense yeah. that it gives you the streaming, but it's terrible for artists. Right. So lots of different uh, arms and streams into the problem. Right. Um, but, well, let's move on to the next topic where um, we're talking about pastors as authors. And so this is relevant to you because you're in seminary right now. And I write and so, all the time. And you write all the time. And you're surrounded by people who are pastors and um, academicians and who are really involved in this, you know, endeavor. Absolutely. And in fact, my own pastor is an author. Uh, he just published his first book and he is working on a commentary. So he fits in this category. Now, this whole thing came up because a few months ago there was an enormous brouhaha over one well-known evangelical figure who was caught in what more accurate but less generous sources called plagiarism and what more generous but less accurate sources called an accidental failure to cite, which in my academic circles is called plagiarism. <laughs> yeah. And some of the comments that came out of this discussion after the fact were fascinating to us. Now, there's a lot to say about the broader phenomena, but I wanted to open with this quote that I pulled from an, a comment on a random blog post and we'll, we'll quote this and post a link to the original comment in the show notes. It's not a particularly exceptional comment. In fact, it's its lack of exceptionality that made it interesting to me. I was reading through these comments on a blog post, and someone said, There is not a single pastor author who does not have a substantially sized team of writers and researchers doing most of their work because it is simply not possible or practical for a full-time pastor to be doing the required amount of work to publish a book. To which my immediate response was, what? No, this is, in other words, the person basically is saying, well, of course someone's being ghostwritten for. Of course someone has someone else to do all this work for them. And here I am thinking, well, maybe it's just the fact that my teaching pastor is not a bigwig in evangelicalism. But, you know, I think he actually wrote his book by himself. <laughs> he, he didn't yeah. have somebody write it for him now the ethics of ghostwriting and so forth this is a, a another related discussion what was more interesting to me is how this ties in with what it means to be a pastor what it means to do your pastoral work well and then how that ties in with other vocations right so one of the things that i was interested about in this is that um that comment shows kind of a particular view of what a pastor does and how it is done. Right. Um, it's really interesting to me that perhaps uh, that's not a what that pastor does. Right. B what all pastors, quote unquote, all pastors do. Right. Um, or C what any pastor should be doing. So there's a right. whole 
whole world realm of things going on in that particular comment. Um, and so, you know, Mark Driscoll is an unusual case um, in that, you know, he's famous. Right. So he's just famous. Um, he's Mark the Cussing Pastor. <laughs> uh, yes. But uh, there's also something interesting in that the average person of a megachurch or a large church uh, doesn't really know what the pastors do all day because it's not a um, interactive sort of thing. So when I was at a very small church, I pretty much knew what the pastor did all week because he, he referenced the things that he did, which were meeting with people. And then I would talk to other people and they would say that they met with the pastor. And so I could get a pretty good picture of what happened in this pastor's life by just, you know, being a part of the life of the community. Right. Uh, All of a sudden, I don't think when that's you the have case. A couple thousand people in your church or you have six campuses to which you're being streamed on video. Most of those people have never even seen you in person or even shaken your hand, much less actually have any idea of what your job and responsibility is. And frankly, when you're the face of a six campus multi-thousand person mega church, most of your work isn't what we would classically think of as pastoral work. It's something else. It's more like management than pastoring. And, you know, and if they're an author, then they're kind of a content creation <laughs> sort of thing. Right. Um, and I don't think that's bad at all. Like, both of us are in the content creation industry. No, content so... creation is grand. Like I said, I write all the time. Yeah, so... Whether anybody it's... reads it, well. <laughs> so it's it's not that I'm uninterested or dismissive of the content creation industry. I just think that um, in for the long run of how this is going to play out, there really needs to start being a distinction between content creating people employed by churches and mm. pastors. Right. And um, even if that's the pastor has a sermon series that needs that he wants to turn into a book and he employs a writer. Cool. That actually makes a lot of sense. Maybe he is too busy doing pastoral things or in someone like Driscoll's case, managerial things or putting on conferences, etc. And we could talk some other time or on some other podcast about whether those are the kinds of things pastors ought to be doing or not. But if you're going to be having someone write for you, if you're going to have someone turn your sermon manuscripts into a book to sell, maybe the ethical thing to do, and I say maybe, but I mean the ethical thing to do is <laughs> your co-authors. Because yes, you came up with that material. Yes, you generated a lot of that yourself. And that's non-trivial. And the pastor's name should be on the book. But so should the guy who turned it into a sermon or turned it from a sermon series into a book. Because that's a serious amount of work. And maybe big head honcho pastor and some random guy you've never heard of doesn't sell as well. But especially in the context of ministry, the question of integrity is just huge. And if you can't do it that way, then maybe you need to be in a different role. As Stephen said, maybe pastor isn't what you're really suited for. Maybe writer is. Maybe motivational conference speaker and author is. Now, I think a lot of people go that way because they're hungry for fame rather than because it's necessarily the best use of their gifts or the area in mm. which they can most effectively be honoring God. But 
I think we need to at least have the honesty with ourselves and with each other to say what we're really doing. And if you're not really pastoring, say, look, guys, I'm not really pastoring, but I love writing books. And if you're not really writing books, but you love pastoring, it's okay to say, you know, I'm not really a book guy, but if you want to collaborate with me, we can both put our names on it and I'll give you my sermon series and you can, I, yeah. I think that's a good way to go. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even be opposed to seeing something like, you know, in these, these churches, which employ 50, a hundred, 150 people, you know, having a job that's writing pastor, right? Like, all you do is you write. Right. Um, and maybe, you know, you're, you don't even generate quote unquote your own content, but you're taking the sermon or the sermon series or the, the notes or whatever, and you're, um, the, the writer. Um, right. and so at that point, then your name becomes, you know, first, you know, author point, and then mega famous pastor person becomes the second author point. Right. And then if in, you know, in 10 years of this, then the writing pastor is the famous one and the pastor gets to do his pastoring thing. Right. So if we just start to invert some of these roles and say that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the person who stands up there and preaches it that is the writer of it. Right. Um, if we don't have to say this all came from one God-inspired divine sort of <laughs> silo. Um, right. You know, if we can acknowledge that there is a distinct creative process going on throughout right. the variety of things that are happening, not even to mention the creative variety with which we can use the Christian marketing system, <laughs> right. um, which is another angle on this that is um, an interesting uh, thing to take up. Right. We have uh, an entire sub-market here of Christian books written by Christian authors, many of them pastors, for a Christian audience through Christian and publishing Moore. houses. Yeah, and Beth Moore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's really interesting to me that there's a lot of you know thoughtful Christians who will say that, oh, Jesus t-shirts are bad, and oh, the, it's just the same book over and over again, and oh... But I'm actually really thankful that we have a, you know, a government and a society right. and um, a point in time where we can have this really quirky, odd, sometimes very silly, you know, sub-market. Right. Um, so I'm not even opposed to the concept of, you know, Christian books existing in the world. Now, are there large swaths of them that I never want to read? Yeah, yes, I'm not yes, into Amish romances, <laughs> not into Amish romances at all. But I'm happy that there are, you know, valid and useful and able to exist expressions of the desires to do this. Yeah, and I um, think I think that the fact that we get to have the conversation about whether this particular approach is appropriate or not, and the question of to what extent we should think about profit in marketing Christian devotional material. These are all important questions, but the very fact that we get to have them is a function of the fact that we're in an extremely affluent, extremely tolerant in the best possible way, society where Christians can do these sorts of things. Um, if we lived in Iran, we would not be doing these kinds of things. We wouldn't be having this argument. It's an argument yeah. that can only exist in the context of extraordinary privilege. And while we should absolutely 
be thoughtful and raise critiques as appropriate, we should also express that kind of gratitude that we live in a situation where we get to have those kinds of things to critique, rather than wondering if our pastor is going to get arrested and thrown in jail and maybe we will never see him again tomorrow. Right. So that's something that I've been really interested about in this whole debate is that a lot of these haven't even taken that context into existence. There's not a lot of acknowledgement that like, wow, this pastor is able to write these books and market in a whole subdivision of bookstores that is made specifically for these types of books. Right. It's just taken Um, for granted. Yeah. And so I think that's something really valuable that we need to, you know, consider as we think about how do we make good and helpful changes to this. Let's not burn the whole thing down. Right. Uh, we, we don't need to do that. Right. We are not in that situation. Um, no, and I think a big part of that is recognizing, look, this is a value to be able to have gifted men and women who are skilled at teaching, who are thoughtful theologians contributing back to the life of the broader church. That's great. It is enormously helpful for the life of the church more broadly. It, it is not to say that every single book published fits in that category, and I think it would be enormously more helpful if publishers were considering not only their bottom line and what they could sell, but their commitment to Christian orthodoxy and to actually building people up with what they're publishing rather than just whatever is going to make them the most money fastest. And some publishers, to be fair, are that thoughtful and considerate, and some of them act like we would expect non-Christian organizations to act, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense of non-Christians, but just in the basic sense that they don't have an inherent commitment to a particularly or peculiarly Christian market approach, because, well, frankly, they're or- they are owned by non-Christian companies who don't share that philosophy. Yeah, and so I think that's part of where this problem came into being, is that it's very clear that if you slap Mark Driscoll on a book, it's it's going to sell better. Yeah, Um, and so, you know, that's a trend that, you know, is sort of a a crass commercialism thing instead of, what is the content of this book? What is the the value to the life of the Church Universal? What is the value to this publishing house? What do we want to be known for? so I think that, you know, that's not a, a small thing to consider when you're, you know, publishing Christian material um, is not just looking at the name brand, not just looking at the, you know, big pastor, author, person, but, you know, really acknowledging if this is co-authored by the pastor, it's it's probably still as good. Um, if there's a first author who's somebody you've never heard of and also someone like, you know, Rob Bell or you know, Tim Keller, um, or, you know, some of these, these people who are famous for X, but also are pastors. Right. Um, you know, I think that still has value to be able to say that, uh, uh, Joe Smith is the main author. Right. And I think the only way, frankly, that this is going to change is by the people who are doing the writing and the people who are doing the contributing, but maybe not the actual writing having the integrity themselves to stand up and say, no, we're going to do this right. We're not going to do this the way that's the fastest road to notoriety, to fame, to profit, to success, but we're going to do it the right way, even if that's slower and harder, even if that's less lucrative. We're going to do it in a way that demonstrates integrity all the way along. Because, frankly, corporations, 
are corporations and their end goal is not glorifying God and building up his people. It's making money. There are Christian corporations that run as exceptions to that. And there are non-Christian corporations as well. But in general, that's, that's where they're going. Yeah. It's, it's a corporation. That's not even, uh, that's not even pejorative. Like, right. Corporations do corporation things. Corporations cool. are legally obligated to <laughs> maximize profit to their shareholders. This is yeah, th- th- and that's not an immoral thing, but it can lead to immoral behavior. And the way past that, the way out of it, is for the people on the ground, the people who are willing to put their name on that book, to make sure that they're doing so honestly and with integrity. And especially if you're going to be publishing a Christian book, do so in a way that honors Christ that doesn't say I love my fame most or I love my money most. And I'm not Mm. by any means suggesting that I have any insight into what was going through Mark Driscoll's head. I'm not attributing those motives to him in the example from which we use this as a launching point, but that we need to be very, very careful that we do not make ourselves the goal and our own advancement, the goal as Christians who are engaging in publishing that even for you and me here on a podcast, that self-promotion isn't the primary point of this, or even really any right. point of it, that helping others think through these things and become better at winning slowly, at getting to good ends in good ways, is worth the cost you pay to do that. Yeah, so speaking of good ends and good ways and legal things and corporations and ethics let's talk about the trans-pacific partnership dun, dun, dun. all right so it's called the the tpp if you're abbreviating it because you're on a first name basis with it hey ttpp um, what's up yeah what up um yeah it's a uh trade agreement um it is not unlike nafta um and that's all um, we know about it that's pretty much all we know because the document is secret. And I know that sounds ridiculous. Because it but is literally, ridiculous. It's, it's a secret. terrible idea. <laughs> it's secret. I went and actually read the Senate bill of which is being passed through, trying to be passed through the, the government right now. And it doesn't and even actually have the agreement in it. Yeah, it doesn't. It just has, it's like a, a, a summary of ends. Like it says, these are the things that this will generally do for you. Um, My basic response to that, were were most of us familiar with the internet meme that shows Captain Picard with his face buried in his hand? That's me right now, face in palm. I no. I'm I'm also I'm also familiar with a Jackie Chan one, but yes, yes, uh, I've seen that one too. (laughs) Face in palm, Uh, yeah, face in palm. Oh, yeah. So it's it's very strange. That in the internet era, which has been marked by openness and increasing openness, that governments around the world, this is just not, not just the American government. Right. Um, this is a trans-Pacific, literally Asian countries and, um, and, and United States. Um, a, there's a lot of secrecy going on. So it's like governments have yet to fully incorporate this idea that – the internet means that you will get found out right. at some point. At some point, the contents of this are going to leak, period. And some That's of it, how it works. Some of it already has right. with uh, WikiLeaks, which is why people started you know, freaking out. The first people to freak out um, were 
well, some of the earliest people to freak out, I can't say they were the first, were um, internet uh, privacy and internet um, copyright issues and um, net neutrality people, even though net neutrality has another battle to be fighting elsewhere. But <laughs> yes. Um, but so, you know, this is uh, an issue where it's something that's going to potentially dir directly affect the entire American population um, in terms of, you know, working uh, jobs, working conditions, whether you're a white collar worker that has different internet abilities or capabilities based on whatever is in this, you know, whatever is in this bill. Um, so it's, it's vastly important and it's not being discussed in an open forum. And there's plenty of, of organizations that are really working to get this into an open forum, electronic frontiers forum and, um, open media and a host of, of others just from the internet side of things. And there are many other organizations that have problems with this right. environmentally and, and other things. Um, because it, it is pretty much an omnibus sort of thing. There's a bunch crammed into this. It has medical stuff. Uh, it has trademark stuff. It has a lot. So we've got a bill here it. that covers everything from general trade agreements to internet regulations to copyright and trademark law to m medical. What what is this? This is crazy. Yeah. In short, it's it's a it's a gigantic thing that is largely being attempted to get put through. Uh, anti-democratically, right. um, which I don't, I do not use that lightly. Um, I am not a demagogue of either side of the party alignment, but just prima facie, this large thing is not even going to be discussed by the people who, you know, are, you know, representing, rep representing me as a American citizen. Right. Um, but there are people who are working to change some of these things which is um, good which is very good um and even if this particular um instance doesn't get you know the it's full day in the sun as it should although it's possible that it will <laughs> right um, we, we have seen still... that happen before when sufficient outrage builds on the internet mm -hmm. yes harry reed just came out against it um so and just for the record there's... i'm not generally a huge fan of harry reed but if the man gets it right the man gets it right go harry reed on go. this one there you go um so but one of the things that's been interesting to me in all of this um other than you know abject horror over um, <laughs> this idea is how the internet has responded and how several organizations have responded right. um open media in particular has uh, a uh, forum which is set up in the form of a survey um, that lets just people, anybody interested, um, make uh, choose some answers to questions about various copyright issues um, because open media is very concerned about copyright. Right, um, and, and these are so, the kinds of questions that just simply aren't being asked. You know, no one's going out and canvassing people like they do before elections and saying, hey, what do you think about these issues of copyright? No, no one's going out and asking people their input on these things. And frankly, as someone who is a creator and has thought a lot about this in the last decade, 
I don't trust that the folks who are in Congress understand these things well enough. And particularly, I don't trust that they understand the perspectives of creatives well enough. I'm pretty sure they understand the perspectives of the people with the purse strings well enough. But those usually aren't the creatives. Right. And, and they're I making think legislation that makes an enormous impact on these people's lives. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that um, previously – you know, democracy was sort of this thing that was like entrusted to these representatives because they were able to be fully versed on issues, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know, and this this presumes, you know, that people can't be, you know, fully versed on issues. And it also presumes that those people whom we are entrusting are themselves fully versed on issues. And I think the history of the last decade and a half shows that that is just not a right assumption. Right. So both of those assumptions are wrong in that people can be very well versed on things. Um, and, you know, there's so much going on in the life of a politician in terms of constituency, in terms of lobbyists, which I don't necessarily think are an evil thing. Um, open media could essentially be called a lobbyist. Right. And I'm very happy to have a lobbyist on my right. side. Like, so, you know, in constituencies and lobbyists and um, events and coordinating, like there's punches going on and there's not always time for every issue to be known by every single politician. Right. Especially, I have no doubt. Especially in the context of a globalizing economy with enormous impact from technologies that are themselves only a few decades old and that are undergoing constant change. And as we talked about in, a, in our previous episode, Things that made total sense 20 years ago may or may not make sense today because the context has shifted so much. Right. And in 20 years, the context is going to be completely different, right. too. And so it's really important to think about those sorts of, of winning slowly events. And like this is definitely an event right. um, that, you know, NAFTA has had dramatic impact over the past 20 years or 15 years. And um, this is something that could have a similar effect. Right. And so it's important to ask people, normal people, quote unquote, normal people, <laughs> yeah. how would how would you rank the priorities below if you were developing copyright laws, protecting free expression, compensation for creators and artists, clear and simple rules, rules made democratically, right. privacy safeguards, protection for media conglomerates. Like, Which one of these is the most important to you? Yeah. You know, and some people are going to say clear and simple rules. That would be really helpful. And I think are going almost to say, everyone except the people who benefit from obscure rules would say clear and simple rules i wouldn't put that at top actually <laughs> i would put compensation for creators and artists but i did put it like two or three <laughs> um but you know it's and so these are the sorts of things that need to be asked right. so like it says if i download copyrighted songs without permission the penalty should be a tribunal should issue me a fine no penalty a warning payment of fine equivalent to the cost of purchasing the song a court should be able to issue a fine that I'd be dis and order that I'd be disconnected from the internet. Crazy. How many but France actually did that? Yeah, it does. Uh, how many years should copyright last? It's everything from zero to a hundred years, zero years period to a hundred years after death. Um, which body should be responsible for enforcing copyright rules? Right. Hugely important. Right. And there are tons like, of these questions. Mm -hmm. that no one is asking anyone as we're, and this is one tiny aspect of this law. That's right. not public, that's not open for public debate, that's not open even really for public criticism because short of WikiLeaks, no one has any we access no to idea. it. We have no, we have no idea, idea what's going on in it. And even if we 
did have access to the full text, anyone who's actually sat down to try to read a law, good luck trying to understand, you know, you as an ordinary individual trying to get a handle on how all these complex pieces relate to each other and what the impacts of all of them together are going to be. Passing omnibus legislation like this is the first terrible idea. Doing it in secret doubles or quadruples the amount of terribleness of the idea. Right. And there are examples of how people have started to do crowdsourcing on these sorts of mm-hmm. things. Um, open media even says in this particular survey, Finland is set to vote on a new crowdsourced copyright law created by over 1,100 people in collaboration with volunteer copyright lawyers. Good job, Finland. That's great. Go, Finland. Finland is good at these sorts of things. So, you know, there, there are other models for making this sort of legislation that's going to affect, you know, wide swaths of people. Right. And I mean, if you, I mean, to some degree, you could say, yes, Silicon Valley is already included in these sorts of things through lobbying. But the, the priorities of a person working at Google can be different than the priorities of Google itself. Right. Um, and the priorities of, you know, me as a freelancer totally are, different. are different. And even so far as the priorities of me as a freelancer versus the priorities of me as an academician, mm-hmm. as me as a podcaster, as me as a musician, like, so there's all these different roles right. that are critically important. Right. Um, and we're not suggesting for a second that the best way to solve all these things is just ask everybody their opinion and come up with the best mishmash of the answer. Cause that would not work either. That would be terrible. Right. But the idea right. that no. we can actually get people's input on laws that are going to affect them and then involve people who are experts. Finland's idea of using lawyers plus crowdsourcing is a great example of this. We'll see how well it works out in practice, but the idea is a great idea. Let's involve the people who will be affected by these laws rather than just handing them down from on high. And let us also make take advantage of and make the best use of the resources that we do have available in a technical and skilled sense. Let's match those together. And all of a sudden, the results, I expect, will be much better. Now, they're not going to be perfect. We are people and we're broken. We're going to have a mass. Politics is always going to be broken in some ways or another. But... Right. And and there's always going to be, like, even if every person gets a say, someone's going to have the opposite of right. their opinion get put into law. Right. Like, that's just going to happen. But having the ability to put up a website and have a million people sign in and say, hey, copyright should be 10 years long, and 700,000 <laughs> of them say that, right. like, that's a pretty good idea. Right that you should at least give that some consideration. Right, and especially Um, give it consideration and weight it against the million-dollar lobbies of the massive, you know, RIA and the MPAA. Because the reality is our congressmen and women are first and foremost appointed to represent us, not to represent companies. And the more that they represent companies rather than us, the worse off everybody is. Right. And, you know, we could skew a little idealist here, but I really think that there is a logistical possibility of this becoming a part of mm-hmm. a governmental system. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not looking for, like, pure, perfect, individual democracy one-to-one. Um, I'm just looking for more incorporation of 
of people's interest, individual people's interest into the democratic process, right. which is now possible right. because of the technical means that we have. And we're starting to see that taken up. And I would like to see that continue to be taken up more. Absolutely. And I would like to see the government start to put that forward. And they have slightly with the petition, the White House, 100,000 um, thing, which I really appreciate. It's a great, it's um, a great PR move, if nothing else. If nothing else. But I think that there really is possibility. There is. Um, and I'm really excited about it. And I think well, the biggest thing to wrap up here is, again, you're not going to get a cure-all solution, but you might make things a little better. And yeah, it's going to take time. Yeah, it's going to probably take longer to do things that way than if you can just ram it through. But it'll be a little better, and that's what we're going for. A little better every day. This has been your second episode of Winning Slowly. We'd like to remind everyone that all of our content is licensed under a Creative Commons attribute license. So please don't just copy and paste, but please do remix, reassemble, and recreate new things out of what we've done. Until next time, I have been Chris Kreicho. And I am and will be Stephen Caradini. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.